Weekend Mornings with Glenn Van Zutphen. Replay from Money FM 89.3. Weekend mornings with Glenn Van Zutphen on Money FM 89.3. Steve Oaken, International News Week in Review. Lots going on. Let's start with the story that's closest to home for everybody, honestly, and that is the haze. It is not just obviously affecting Singapore. We're in the 109 to 120 uh, PSI range today, uh, which is, of course, not good, but affecting KL, affecting all over. This is an ASEAN problem. Why is it so hard to get across this for the leaders? Well, it's 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 a global problem. I mean, you could throw in the Amazon and, and what's happening there as well. And that's because, you know, the, it's, it's everything is short term and, and we don't take natural capital into account. And mm-hmm. so people just burn off the, the forest because you've got poor people in, in those areas globally who need to make money. And the government's don't know how to deal with it, can't deal with it. They'll put the costs on, you know, Singapore and, and Malaysia as the costs in Brazil go elsewhere. And we need a, a global way to solve this. And certainly ASEAN needs a way to solve it. And it, it hasn't been solved because we go through this every few years. It's, you know, every time they meet, they're like, yeah, we're going to we're gonna talk about it. We're going to get something done. And then, you know, the next year or a year later, two years later, we're in the same position. And I was going through the old Straits Times stories and the first – you know, the first mention of the smog as, as far as a big story in Straits Times, 1972. Mm. Like, how many more decades are we going to have to deal with this? Well, and, and again, until the developed and developing worlds can figure out how to work together, until the developed worlds can figure out how they're going to help cover the costs of not burning um, instead of paying for it through ill health, paying through it for a bad environment, you're not going to solve it. And that is, you know, that is the problem. It, it's, you know, Paris tried a little bit, but then you look at, you know, what Donald Trump says, says, I'm not going to cost my country money to help other countries pollute by stopping us from you, the U.S., from doing it. And that's why it, there isn't really a, a solution in sight, which is very depressing. Of course, we have, uh, you know, the fires now are in Sumatra and Riau and then across the other side, the Malaysian side of Kalimantan. And, you know, each of these governments is saying we're trying. We're, you know, we're going to, uh, you know, fine the companies. We're going to put people in jail. We're going to shut down plantations and all of that. How much of that do you actually believe is happening. Well, I mean, I mean, I think it, it, I'm they, skeptical, as you can tell. Yeah, I mean, and they can they can do it to some degree and you can limit it a bit. But at the at the bottom, at the end of the day, it's how are you going to help the poor people, you know, get jobs? How are you going to help the poor people make money? How are you going to help yeah. them raise their income levels? And if the government is just doing all governments, not just the, the Indonesian Malaysian governments, if they're all focusing on, on enforcement, but not solving the problem, which yeah. is how you help people get out of poverty, you're not going to solve it, no matter how much you, you threaten enforcement. Yeah. It was interesting. A, a number of years ago, uh, Malaysia started, at least on peninsular Malaysia, uh, started this practice uh, after the fires were bad one particular year of recycling the trees. So the trees that, uh, on the plantations that they were uh, that were old, that they normally would have burned, they cut them down and then put them in the center of the row uh, on the sides of the new trees, right? So that they, you know, biodegraded and became fertilizer and all that. And it was such a simple and smart solution. Of course, it takes equipment. It takes machinery to do that. And your average, 
poverty-stricken uh, farmer somewhere out in Sumatra doesn't have the money to have that kind of machinery. Wouldn't it make sense almost for countries to invest in that kind of machinery, even on a cooperative basis for people to be able to use that in communities or wherever? And uh, I just don't get why those solutions aren't happening. Well, I, the problem is when I talk to my friends in the commodities trading firms about this, they say, well, well, the consumers will talk about how much they want to buy sustainable, you know, chocolate, you know, and, and you know, having things and, or sustainable shampoo, anything that's made with palm oil, but they're not willing to pay for it. The consumers talk a good game, but the consumers aren't willing to pay for it. So then you have countries like like China and India, which will buy the unsustainable mm. palm oil. Um, and that's where you get the problem. So you need a global solution. There are ways to do it. You can have more sustainable palm oil. No one is saying we should be really banning palm oil because it is a help in, in, to the environment in some ways because it is so, so much more efficient than the, than the alternatives. Yeah. But we're not there. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, they, although they haven't called me to solve the problem yet, I, I, my, my phone is right here. I'm waiting for Indonesia, Malaysia to call me. I've got all the answers. They know where to reach you. <laughs> they know where to find me. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Uh, you know, this week, uh, Ipsos and the American Chamber of Commerce here in Singapore released a flash survey on business sentiment around Hong Kong, the protests, and what that means for businesses operating in Hong Kong and then also vis-a-vis -vis what it could mean for Singapore. So some really interesting insights came out of that. Um, you know, when you look at 73% uh, of, of companies, uh, those represented, you know, were thinking about a regional office that could be based in Singapore or somewhere else. There's, there were some interesting numbers there. Nothing definitive. There was still kind of a wait and see element to this. Well, I, I think there is a wait and see if you're in Hong Kong now. So if you're in Hong right. Kong now, if you have your investment there, um, you have been impacted on the margins there. I know people who are not going to Hong Kong from mm. the United States or from Australia because they're like, I don't want to take a chance that the airport gets shut down again. Right. Um, so there is some impact on the margins to the people who are in Hong Kong. But in terms of saying, well, am I going to leave or not leave, they're not even really considering that yeah. yet. It's too soon. They're going to look. However, if you are actively considering, do I go to Hong Kong or Singapore, this now weighs another, uh, gives you another reason for why to go to Singapore. Mm. I mean, there, there's competition between the two markets now. Singapore has its advantages. Hong Kong has its advantages. This now tips the scales a bit more towards Singapore than it would have otherwise. What's it going to take? I think we've asked this question before. Hmm. What's it going to take uh, to break this deadlock? Is it going to have to be another uh, step that the SAR government comes up and says, okay, now we're going to approve the the police, uh, you know, brutality commission mm -hmm. or whatever. Right, right. Uh, you know, wh how far are they going to have to go before this starts to break some of their like? Because many of these protesters, there's this peaceful group that's out there doing their thing respectfully and in an appropriate way. And now there's this, of course, this more violent group that's, you know, breaking apart MTR stations and stuff, throwing well, and gas bombs. It, I mean, if, if the protesters really are not, do not appear to be organized in, in any significant fashion. Right. As you say, there's, there's factions with each. If mm -hmm. the protesters were able to figure out how can you push the Chinese government and the Hong Kong government through them mm. as hard as you can while keeping the people, the majority of the people on your side. Mm. And so if you get too violent, um, then you're really going to lose some of that grassroots support that you need beyond the students who are, you know, seem to be, uh, you know, driving a lot of this. Yeah. If the protesters can stay smart, they can take this a lot longer and probably be more successful. They're never going to get universal suffrage. Or it doesn't seem to be that that's 
going to happen anytime right. soon. Right. But they can get half a loaf. The question is if they're willing to take it or not. Yeah, interesting. Okay. A lot of stories actually in the media and the Straits Times and elsewhere about the results of this AmCham survey. Uh, so people can find those, uh, find that online uh, in, a, in a number of different stories. Let's move on. The the Yemeni drone strikes in against Saudi Aramco, uh, massive. The pictures and the video, I mean, this was not just some little kind of thing. This was massive. It's causing massive disruption. And, and, you know, this is one of those things where what the U.S. is going to do and where it's going to take its foreign policy is going to be really important. And where we're at a disadvantage from a, a U.S. government perspective, I think, is that, one, if the Iranians are behind the Houthi rebels and they've been able to, to give them support financial and, and otherwise to get these drone strikes in there, then what are we going to do? Because we've already cut off our relations <laughs> with Iran. We already have sanctions on Iran. We've mm. already taken, you know, we've already pulled out of the out of the, the nuclear deal. So we don't have as much leverage as we could have had otherwise. So we're, we're not in as good a place to assert leverage there. We're already in a difference with our allies over what to do with Iran. Mm. And then, you know, to the American public, you know, writ large, uh, they do not want to support MBS within the Saudi government because, uh, you know, as, as our intelligence community says, he ordered the killing of a, a Washington Post reporter mm. um, in a consulate overseas. And so we don't have have the leverage and the positioning we should have going into this, because this is a real serious concern. While it may not hit the U.S. oil supply, because so much of the U.S. gets its own oil from North America now, it will drive up global prices, and that is going to hit U.S. consumers, which the Trump administration does not want to see going into an election year. Yeah. The uh, Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, condemns Iran for this. He doesn't think that Yemen is or the, the, the Houthi group is behind, even though they, they took responsibility for it right away on Saturday. It seems like the U.S. is positioning for a fight against Iran. Uh, more more than, you know, going in and doing strikes in Yemen. And that is, you know, where you have the two factions within the Trump administration that you saw kind of play out with, you know, Bolton's departure um, as national security advisor. Mm. Do you take that hard line? Do you, you know, attack Iran uh, or as the United States supposedly was going to do until the president called off the, the airstrikes against Iran in, in retaliation for the tanker attacks. Yeah. And so it, it's very unstable where the U.S. is going to go because you have two factions that are pushing and pulling one another. And you see it playing out in Iran. You see it playing out in North Korea. You see it playing out um, in Venezuela. And now we're going to see it really play out in Yemen and Saudi Arabia. Well, OK, we'll have to keep an eye on that one. Uh, let's uh, finish off with the Democratic debate. There was a lot of fireworks going back and forth, of course, uh, people taking uh, shots at Joe Biden, who is a uh, uh, seems to be more or less the front runner at this point. Um, I was surprised as I watched. I, I was I hadn't seen the last debate, and I was actually surprised at how confused Joe Biden looked and sounded to me. Uh, more often than not, uh, he he seemed like a really old man up there trying to keep up. And I, is is that a is that a miss? read of, of, of his situation? Well, I, I would say the, the concern I would have if I were the Biden campaign is that you're not alone in that. Yeah. Others did not see that, but yeah. some do. And yeah. and maybe, it, it, look, he's he would be the oldest president in history right. if he gets the nomination uh, and wins going into his first term. So that is a concern. But when people attacked him on it, and, and, and you know, and Castro attacked him on it in particular, Castro got Beat slaughtered yeah, by, yeah, yeah. By, by the 
Democrats for for doing that. And then Castro had to you know push it back. Said, "Well, I wasn't attacking his age; I was attacking his ideas." And so what you see playing out in the Democratic debate now. And, and people said, oh, it's, it's a, a showdown between Biden and Warren, and, and they don't understand what this debate was about. This debate was about who is going to be the moderate, who's going to battle Warren and Sanders. And that's mm. why you saw Castro going after Biden. It's not why Warren went after Biden. She let the moderates do that. She wants to figure out how she can leapfrog Bernie. Let Bernie be angry. Right? Let Bernie do the attacking. She <laughs> had a very good strategy for this debate, I thought. Huh. Who do you think can, – can you say there, that somebody won this debate or looked better than somebody, than somebody else? Well, in part Warren won because I think Bernie lost a little bit of credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and right now it is who's going to be the progressive uh, that's going to lead the pack. Is it going to be Bernie or is it going to be Warren? So I think Warren won over Bernie. And then on the moderate side, in a way you have to say uh, Biden won because – Harris didn't have a breakthrough moment. Buttigieg didn't have a breakthrough moment. Klobuchar didn't have a breakthrough moment. And so he's still the head of the moderate wing. So I think Biden won because nobody is now clearly going to be the challenger. And I think Warren won. And and it wasn't a Biden versus Warren debate. Have they announced another the next debate? Uh, I think it's it's mid-October. Maybe the 15th, I think. But it's mid-October is the last one under these rules. Mm. Um, And so I think we may even get another one or two joining. And so will they have 11 or 12 people on the stage or are they going to split it into two nights? Then they're going to come up with the new rules of who qualifies for the debate based on your polling numbers uh, and the amount of individual donors. And then it'll it'll narrow down some more. So we got one more with this. So that'll be in 2020. The new rules would be debates for 2020. Oh, it might even be early December. Um, I'm not sure when the, the, the next one is scheduled after October. Right. Steve Oaken, Senior Advisor, McClarty Associates. Thanks for coming on our international news review this week. Great to be here, Glenn. Always great to see you. Thanks. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.